welcome on this 4th of July weekend, huh? What a beautiful weekend we've had. And we're delighted you're here. Maybe you're visiting with us. We're so happy to have you here. We are starting a new series this weekend. And uh, it's. Uh, he, let me begin by asking you this question. You've probably seen those ink blot tests, you know, where they put them an ink blot up and you're supposed to describe what you see. And so you look at it and you say, oh, I see a butterfly or I see a bird or I see something like that, right? And then, uh, or they say, well, I see uh, eggs or bacon or uh, a pancake, you know, or something like that. And f- fr- or you say, I see blood and I see somebody with a knife. Uh, so from those interpretations... They're supposed to be able to tell you what's going on in your head. And, you know, uh, that was used widely in the 1960s and don't know whether it still is. But you imagine, they, they tell you, imagine, what do you see? What does your mind see? And the series we're going to talk about kind of talks about this whole idea of how we imagine, how we view God. And what we have to really begin by saying is we all have a perception of God. We all have this, this idea of what God looks like. God is like the ink blot out there, and we're kind of trying to describe what we see. But what we tend to do is we tend to describe what, kind of like what we are and who we are. Uh, we, in other words, what I'm suggesting is we have a tendency to imagine God in our own image. And we often assign Him our own personality, our, our values, and our, our biases. Uh, this also affects how we relate to God. For example, if you view God as kind of this uncaring, unloving, distant Father, uh, you're probably going to struggle with how you connect with God. Or the opposite of that is you, you, you view God as this loving, very caring grandfather who basically cannot say no to you for anything. Uh, you may miss out on the power and the otherness and the holiness of God. So the problem is this. We can't and we're not, <laughs> we're not capable of determining who God is. Um, we can't determine and deter and, and declare what God is like. And I'm convinced that many people, including many Christians, have a warped view of who God is. That uh, we, we have all sorts of problems. And that, and that creates other problems when we try to really relate to Him and connect with Him. And we'll see that as we go on. So this series is really about how do we connect with God? How do we, you know, one of the taglines, really our major tagline for Hope Church is helping people connect with God. And so this series really hits the nerve of what we're all about. So in the next month, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to discover and kind of describe some of the unhealthy, unbiblical, inferior views of how we relate to God. And then we're going to try to explain and present what the Bible says and how we can and how we should and how God wants to relate to us and how we can connect him to Him. The idea from this series came from this book, and it's uh, entitled, very interestingly enough, With, and the idea is to be with God. We have copies of this book at the uh, Connection Center, and if you'd like to pick a copy up, I would encourage you to do it. It's very well written. 
And uh, so this series is really kind of springboarded from this book. We read it as a staff uh, about a year ago, and I just felt like it was such a great explanation, and it, it really covers a lot of inferior views of how to relate to God. It, and what I'm suggesting is this. It may be that you've really tried very hard to connect with God, and you just don't know how to get there. You've really just not gotten there, and you don't know what to keep. And you may be busy doing good things and serving Him and, and doing all these things, but you just feel like something is missing. And I think he kind of hits at what is going on there. So he uses prepositions to describe how we relate to God. So we're going to move through those prep, prepositions as we move through there. And the, the two we want to focus on this weekend are the preposition under and over, that we relate to God as being under Him and then sometimes relate to Him as being over Him. So we're going to look at, at these prepositions this weekend. So let's look at this under. How do we relate to God? What is this under God view? What is this, this like? And uh, the idea here is that many people through the years, through the centuries, have related to God and they view Him as a capricious deity who has to be appeased in order to guarantee our blessing and to avoid His judgment. So we have these really old movies that we used to watch, or at least I did in TV, where somebody's tied up and the natives are offering this human sacrifice to God, to appease God so He doesn't destroy them or gives them good crops, whatever. And that was the basic view of uh, many in the ancient world. This was a very common view in the ancient world, that, that God was there and you had to please Him or you had to, you could even say, that people would look at Christianity or look at the Old Testament and they would say the Hebrew people were living under this. They, they were offering sacrifices to appease their God to, so that they would have blessing and that they wouldn't be cursed. And so this is a very common view. But here's what's happened. In our modern day and age, we realize, because we're more educated than these inferior people that went before us, and uh, by the way, we are snobs because we think we have it figured out and we're smarter than everyone. And in about 50 years, people are going to look at us and say, you don't know anything. We're smart. You guys are really quite ancient and quite behind the times because that's what tends to happen. We become cultural snobs. But here's the point. Uh, we are more educated now and we say, uh, we know that that's not the way that it works. And we may even say, well, that's not part of our culture today because we're more educated. We know better. We don't fall for that stuff anymore. For example, uh, we would say, uh, this, this isn't true of our culture anymore. Maybe, maybe third world parts, third, third world part areas, but not here in America, not us. And I would just say to you that... Uh, this is so rampant in our culture, especially when tragedy comes. Now think about that for a minute. For example, when we experience the natural disasters like 9-11, or the devastation of Hurricane Katrina, 2005, or the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, we heard people say things like, God was judging those people. 
I heard Christians saying that this was God's judgment, meaning that if, if people had really believed, if they had lived more moral lives, that these natural disasters and these terrible things wouldn't have happened. That in a sense, this is God's judgment coming down on those people. My question is, what about the, the believers that loved God, the followers of Jesus in the Twin Towers when they went down? What about the people, the many missionaries in Haiti what about those who were um, killed during Katrina and lost churches and properties? What about that? So it's, it's easy to say that. Uh, my question is, did they deserve to die? Did they deserve to lose? And so it, it, when we get simplistic and we say, well, when we do this, God will bless us, but when we do this, God will judge us and bring judgment on us, it gets very simplistic and it brings us to a place uh, of foolishness. And I think that probably is demonstrated the most by uh, one of my teams and one of their players, uh, Stevie Johnson. He is a wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills. And a couple of years ago, they were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he was in the end zone, and he had the ball within his hands, and he dropped the pass. And it was the last play. It was the last chance. And uh, so who did he blame? Did he blame the quarterback? No. Did he, did he blame that he got bumped by the coverage? No. Here's who he blamed. He sent out this phrase on Twitter. I praise you 24... By the way, Steve Johnson would say I'm a Christian, okay? And I wouldn't argue that with him because I don't know his heart. I praise you 24-7 and this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this ever. Okay? So what do we have here? What we have is, what's he doing? He's saying, I'm living this under view of God. And, and, and he believed that if he did his part, God would do his part. That if he lived a, ver- a fairly righteous, moral, decent life, that somehow or another God was going to put some extra stickiness to his fingers. And he was going to catch those passes. And God was going to bless him. And essentially, this view believes if I live right, God will make sure my life is good. If I sin, God will punish me. And Stevie Johnson is illustrating life under this life under God. And some people, maybe friends of family members that you know, have walked away from God because they prayed, God, will you heal this person, do this? And He didn't do it. And they said, well, that's it. I'm done with you. By the way, just a side question. Does God hate the Buffalo Bills? I think the evidence is very clear. Yes, He does. They lost four Super Bowls in a row. That's consecutive. Four straight Super Bowls in a row they lost. Absolutely, God hates the Buffalo Bills. And I have lived under that curse. <laughs> but this is the argument of Job's friends. Eliphaz says to Job, and this is, very, this is a kind of a 
the same thing that Job's friends were saying to him, but he puts it in a very succinct way. He says, it is because you are so pious that he... Uh, that, is it because you are so pious that he accuses you and brings judgment against you? No. It's because of your wickedness. There's no limit to your sins. So he's saying, listen, it's very clear. The reason you're struggling right now, the reason everything that your family has been taken and you've lost your wealth and your, your health is gone is because you are a sinner and God is judging you. And that's why I think it's so, so important that you read the first couple of chapters of Job because in the first chapter in Job chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? And what does God say? Can you imagine if God said this about you? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. So what is God saying here? This guy is the cream of the crop. He's top of the class. He's the best there is. And and he says it not just once, he says it twice. And he does that for a reason. Because Job's friends are going to come at Job uh, hard and they're going to say, you must have done something to anger God and he's punishing you for that. Job was righteous. Yet he still suffered severely. That was not just a common view in the Old Testament. It's a common view in the New Testament. There was a time where Jesus was walking and they came across the man who was born blind. Uh, the passage, uh, John chapter, uh, John says as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been born bl- blind from birth. A rabbi, his disciples, asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents? In other words, there must be a reason behind his blindness. He must have done something. If he didn't, his parents certainly did, because that's the only explanation that could be. But notice what Jesus says. He says it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. By the way, I would suggest that's what was going on with Job, that God was doing something besides what we could see. We, we, we had the opportunity in Job chapters 1 and 2 where the veil of heaven was pulled back and we were able to see something that Job never saw. Now, what's wrong with this under view of God? And, and many Christians hold this view, sadly. First, God isn't some angry, capricious deity who's looking for ways to punish people when they step out of line or fail to do what they are assigned. Too many, I've met too many people that see God as just this angry person. It's just waiting for you to step out of line. And the minute you do, man, he's ready to whack you. And I think we also need to be careful that we don't put God into some formula. If we say... Uh, If we follow some set of moral guidelines, God is obligated to make our lives go as we wish without pain, suffering, trials, or tribulations. And that's why when we offer a prayer, and we pray very sincerely for somebody that we love and care about, we pray for them to be healed and they're not, that we need to be really careful that we don't do that. See, if you hold to this under view of God, you will one day, you will come to a day where you become angry with God because He failed to follow the rules of your relationship. 
And maybe you're one of them, or maybe you know a family member that they just kind of said, this has to happen, and if God doesn't do this, I'm done with Him. The underview of God is not an accurate portrayal of the Heavenly Father we find in the Bible. So that's, that's one of the views that we carry around with God that we really seriously have to examine under the light of Scripture and say, that's not the God that we find in the Scripture. Here's the second one, over God. And this is kind of on the opposite of the continuum. Instead of seeing God as this capricious, angry deity who's waiting for us to step out of line, the under God is, is a more common view. We often carry around. The, 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 the idea here is it's, uh, it's, it's the person that says, I don't know if there is a God. Uh, I'm sure there isn't. Or there may be a God, but all I believe that he's ever done is set the world into motion and kind of step back. He's not involved. And, and probably the song, and he mentions this in the book, and I think it's, this song is always, it's beautiful. It's a fabulous song, and it's just absolutely awful. John Lennon, imagine. Let me read you some of the words from that song. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. In other words, there is no God. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion, too. Imagine all the people Living life in peace. And Lenin was a strong believer. John Lennon was a strong believer that the biggest problem with this world was religion. This was a utopian view. You probably have seen this. Maybe you have it on your car. Coexist. And it has all the religious symbols, right? And it's like, can't we all just get, get along? And so religion gets a lot of blame for all the evil in the world. And this is, a, this is a favorite theme of atheists and agnostics. They say, if there was no religion, there wouldn't be any of these problems. If there wasn't Judaism, and if there wasn't Islam, and if there wasn't Christianity, if there wasn't Hinduism, if we didn't have all these religions, we wouldn't be fighting, and it would be the, it, we'd, we'd live at peace. There's two problems with that. The first one is you can't blame religion for the way the world has been or currently is today. Now, listen, I am not for a second saying there is a terrible abuse within religion. And I would put Christianity in the middle of that. There there have been horrible things done in the name of Christianity. Absolutely. No question about it. But I would propose to you that secular humanism, those that are atheistic or, in, or, or, or basically say there is no God, there is nothing but heaven, there is no God, they have done more damage and destruction than religion. For instance, under Stalin, the Soviet Union killed 20 million people. Under Mao's cultural revolution, 65 million people died. The Khmer Rouge in Cambodia killed 2 million people. Human trafficking involves 27 million people today. 
This has nothing to do with religion. Advocates who desire a world without religion fail to take into account how much the world is evil apart from religion. And this is what he says on page 44. He says, secular humanism, and that's just the belief that there is no God, that science is our, our, uh, our Savior, has no record of removing fear, fostering peace, or leading to a just world. So the first one is, you can put all the blame on religion, but it, does, it won't stay there because secularism, or those who say, I have no religion, has done just as much evil, if not more. Secondly, when we, when we ask for a world without God, we fail to take in something very personal that every one of us carries with us. The world can be a very dark and evil place. But the reason that the world can be a very dark and evil place is because of us. And we call it evil. The Bible clearly states that one of the major problems in this world is us. Jeremiah puts it this way, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? You could put, per, you could put two people in a perfect world and there will be trouble because of what's inside. The world is not really because of religion, but because of the evil that is found in the human heart. So this whole idea that we don't need God, that we can live nicely without Him, thank you, has some major flaws. Many, if not most, of our modern culture has come to a place where they no longer feel the need to include God in any discussions of life. We are living in a world today that is scientifically driven. We believe, our culture believes, that if there is a problem, we will come up with a solution. Science will find the answer. Some, just give us enough time, give us enough resources, and we'll figure it out somehow, someday. We don't need God. We will figure it out. For instance, we would say that ancient culture believed that they had to offer sacrifices to control the weather so they would have e either good weather or you know they would get the rain when they needed it or whatever. Um, the interesting thing is we... Now, apparently, are experts on the weather. Just turn your TV on whenever there's a storm somewhere in the Midwest. And all night long, they'll tell you everything about where the thunder is hitting, the lightning is hitting, excuse me, where the tornado might be, and it's like a commentary for three hours on, at night. But they can't tell us what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. Right? Have you noticed that? They can tell you what's happening right now, but they can't tell you what's going to happen in 24 hours. Now, I can't tell you what's happening right now by looking out the window. So, I mean, I, you, I get that. I get, but you, here's the point. We become pretty arrogant because we say, well, we know all about that, but we can't really predict it. I mean, who would have predicted that we were going to have a cool day today? Did they say that a week ago? I don't remember that. Well, that's too far out. We believe we can explain things. If we can't fix it, give us some time. We'll figure it out. Now, I had two interesting episodes. One time, recently I was in the doctor's office, 
and I read Time Magazine, and it was an article on the universe, and it was talking about black holes. It was a very interesting article. And it, I didn't understand half of what I was reading. And I believe that the reason I didn't understand half of what I was reading is because the person writing the article didn't understand most of what they were writing. They, they were explaining it, but it, and it, basically the gist of it was, we don't understand a lot about this. But what we do know, or what we think we might know, is this. And it was like, okay, that's just wild. And so I walked away thinking, this article is telling me we don't know very much about not just the universe, but just black holes, okay? So then I had to go back to the doctor, and I read another Time magazine. It was about our brains and how they're trying to map our brains, and figure them, them out. And they said, we think that we could, we could map the brain of a mouse, which is about the size of a peanut, I guess, and it would take all the supercomputer, all the computer, all the, da- all the, the, the hard drive space, all of the space that we have in the, in the world to map just the brain of a mouse. And I walked away thinking, okay, so we don't know really anything about our universe. We don't really know anything about our brain. I mean, in the sense of mapping it and understanding, you know, all that's going on there. There's a whole bunch of stuff we just do not understand and do not know about our, just our own bodies, let alone the brain. And I walked away thinking... This is a complex world that we live in, and I'm a pretty complex person. Not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. And there's a a continuum of belief about God in our modern world. You know, at one end of the spectrum, we have those who would call them atheists or agnostics. And the only difference between atheists and an agnostic is an atheist says, I know there is no God, and an agnostic says, I'm not sure but they tend to talk to agnostics and they tend to be more atheistic. than They basically say there is no God. Then there are those who believe, well, I believe there's a higher power. I believe there is somebody who created all of this. Um, and we would call them deists. And they are basically who would say the world has been wound up like a, a, like a clock. It is running. There are principles. There are laws. There are different things happening. And, but this creator has made it the clock. He's wound it up. He set certain principles to task. And he stepped back and he doesn't intervene. He's not involved anymore. And that's the deist view. Now, as a Christian, it's very easy for us to look at our universe and learn and see principles and look, at, look to God and find principles and, and ideas and adopt unknowingly this over-God view in a sense that if we follow this principle or if we do this, if we do this, if we follow this line, if we do this, then, then things will work in a certain way. And to a certain extent, there are laws within the universe, not just physical laws, but there's moral laws, there's, there's spiritual laws, the Bible says. But we need to be very careful that we don't, get, we don't fall into this trap. And here's, here's the danger here, because it's easy for us that if we make being a Christian simply following a set of rules or principles rather than being with God, we're in danger of being a Christ follower 
and acting like almost like a deist or acting like uh, in other words it's possible to live according to the principles of his kingdom and yet not have no connection with the king and, and sometimes maybe I've been in danger of presenting a message to you saying five principles to help you in your marriage and they are principles that could help you in your marriage but they have nothing to do with helping you connect with your creator the one who designed marriage so it's possible that I have been a contributor to that. But here's where I want to close. Jesus said this in John chapter 5. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. And I think he would add, and they do. But don't just search the Scriptures for eternal life. And that's where I think we make the mistake. He says this, But the Scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me and receive this life. And I think what Jesus is saying is, we can pray a prayer, we can believe a certain theology, but if we miss out on the Savior, we miss everything. And... This is getting to the heart of the issue. Remember, and I want to close with this, and you, we've talked about it a few weeks ago. There were two sisters, and Jesus went to their house. Their names were Mary and Martha. And Martha was busy with all the preparations for the visit and the meal and all that. And she became overwhelmed with doing things. And she was doing good things. She was preparing a meal because Jesus was coming. Her friend. And, and she was working hard. And Mary, her sister, the lazy one, here she is, Mary's just sitting with Jesus. He's, she's listening to what He has. She's just with Him. So Martha gets upset. She says, look at what I'm doing for you. And my sister's not helping me. Jesus says something that we have to hear. In Luke chapter 10, the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. What Jesus was saying was so, so important for us here. He's saying, You know what? You can do all these things for me, Mary, or Martha, and I appreciate it. it. They're good things. But the most important thing is that you're with me. That you connect with me. And I'm afraid that as Christians, we get so involved in doing things and getting involved in Christian activity and reading Christian books and even reading our Bible for Christian, you know, Lord, I need something to help me with this or something like that. That we don't just sit with Jesus and say, Jesus, I just want to be quiet with you. I just want to sit with you. I just want to be with you. And if you're a parent, just think of what it's like when your child comes to you and just sits next to you. Says, I just want to be with you. I just want to have a relationship with you. You could be involved in a lot of activity and miss the relationship. And what Jesus was saying is, Martha, don't fall for that trap. Don't fall for the trap of being busy doing things for me and miss out on being with me. 
So next weekend, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how often we relate to God because He can give us stuff. Right? And we pray, God, give me stuff. And usually it's good stuff that we're asking for. But my hope and prayer is that by the end of this series, we'll desire to be with Him. And we'll know what that looks like. But we've got to reject these two views that, that we're under God and that if we follow the rules, everything will go right. Or that we're over God. We really don't need God or we're looking for just principles. But we don't really have time to sit at His feet. Both of those have to be thrown out. And we have to say, let's not fall for those views because they're, they're unbiblical, they're unhelpful, and they'll never get us to a place where we can be like Mary and Jesus said to her, there is one, only one thing worth being concerned about. Be with me. And if you do that, everything else will fall into place. Let's stand. Let's pray. Help us, Father, because without your help, we can't do this. There's so many ways for us to relate to you. And um, sometimes we feel comfortable in a certain uh, connection with you. I I hope that we've looked at a couple that have really fraught with uh, just, they're just not biblical and they're just not helpful. May we look beyond these and find you. And Father, thank you that it's an amazing truth and it's just beyond our wildest expectations that your whole desire is to be with us. And your desire was so strong that you willingly sent your Son and that Jesus willingly gave His life for us so that we could be with you. Help us not to get involved in doing things or asking for things or living a life so that you owe us something but that we'll just like Mary, be with you, connect with you, find life, and hope, joy, and peace, everything in you. Help us on our journey, Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.